Hi, Coke Scholar family and friends. Welcome to The Sip, the podcast that shares a taste of how Coke Scholars around the world are igniting positive change. This season features amazing panels of scholar experts discussing interesting and timely topics. My name is Aisha Shebby, and I'm excited to lead you through this season. I'm a proud 2020 Coke Scholar, originally from Miami, Florida, and now a junior at Princeton University studying medical anthropology. I also have my own podcast called The Hybrid Podcast. For those who are listening and may not be a Coca-Cola scholar, welcome. We're so glad you're here. To give you a little background, the Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation is the largest achievement-based and corporate-sponsored scholarship program in the country. Each year, it awards $20,000 to 150 high school seniors across the country who share a unique passion for service and leadership. There are now over 6,000 Coke Scholars creating positive change around the world. If you want to learn more, you can visit their website, coca-colascholarsfoundation.org. In today's episode, scholars Pega Taylor, Star Wallen, and Brandon Carde Hernandez will have a robust conversation about education, from reimagining schools to inclusivity and belonging in schools. What are some innovative ways to measure student and adult learning? They will answer all of this and more in this episode. Now, let's learn a little about our panel today. Pega Taylor, also a 2003 scholar, is the Managing Director of Leadership Development with KIPP Texas Public Schools, where she has helped launch the Striving School Leader Cohort and Principal in Residence program to build a healthier and more transparent pipeline to school leadership. She's also a leadership coach, coaching educational leaders across the country, and is a certified coach with the International Coaching Federation. Star Wallen, a 2002 scholar, is the CEO and founder of Bell Creek Consulting a firm dedicated to helping mission-driven organizations achieve the change that matters to the communities they serve. Star hails from a long line of public school educators and has worked across the education employment continuum to dramatically improve educational quality and economic mobility for students. Leading the conversation is 2003 scholar Brandon Carday Hernandez, who has devoted his career to creating the conditions that allow young people to achieve their greatness. He is currently the executive director of the Ivy Street School, a school for neurodiverse students with a therapeutic approach, and previously served as principal at the Urban Assembly Bronx Academy of Letters, where he led a dynamic re-envisioning of school culture and instruction. In January, Boston's Mayor Wu, who is also a Koch scholar, appointed him to the school committee for Boston Public Schools. Without further ado, here are Pega, Star, and Brandon. So it's an incredibly complex time in education. So it's exciting to be having this conversation today. We're watching, you know, politicized school boards, debates over critical race theory and social emotional learning, a a massive teacher shortage and record attrition, piling compensatory services for kids with disabilities, chronic absenteeism, a mental health crisis with unprecedented acute mental health needs facing adolescents and unfinished learning you know, due to, to the pandemic and, and historic inequities. And at the same time, it's not all doom and gloom. We need to name our problems in order to seize opportunity. We have record investment in education from the federal government and states. We've seen access to technology increase as a result of the pandemic, as well as training for teachers and how to use it. 
And of course, there are new ways to engage families with school districts across the country reporting record participation in families uh, joining activities and being part of the school in new ways. And so we have an exciting conversation today. Uh, I'm Brandon Carter Fernandez. Uh, I'm a 2003 Coca-Cola scholar. I grew up in Miami and currently live in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I have spent my years in education, teaching, serving as a turnaround principal, most recently as the education advisor to the New York City mayor. And now I'm the executive director of the Ivy Street School a program where we are serving young folks who are neurodivergent um, through residential programming, in-home programming, and, and a traditional school model. Uh, and a fun fact about me, I love to dance around my apartment when no one's looking. And I'm gonna introduce uh, Pega to tell us a little bit about herself too. Thanks for kicking us off, Brandon. A beautiful introduction. Um, I, uh, my name is Pega Taylor. I'm a 2003 as well, a Coca-Cola scholar, uh, born and raised in Houston, where I still currently reside and work in. Um, I started my career in education from, as a Teach for America Corps member, um, and I've been with the KIPP uh, Public Charter Schools since then. So KIPP stands for the Knowledge is Power Program, and it's a national charter network. Started as a teacher, and then I became a founding school leader in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, um, started a middle school, five through eight, fifth through eighth grade there. Um, and then the last three years, I transitioned to our talent team, where I am now the managing director of leadership development, uh, specifically targeting our uh, principal pipeline, um, ensuring that our assistant principals are ready for the principal seat. Um, and a big lens of that is making sure accessibility um, to all leaders, um, ensuring that their, our leader uh, pipeline uh, represents the students, uh, the demographics of the students we serve. So a big passion of mine through that work is leadership coaching, um, since I do that all day and every day with our leaders. A fun fact about me um, is I have uh, two beautiful boys. Um, one is 15 months and one is three and a half years, and they are truly the light of our lives. What about you, Star? Can you share a little bit about yourself as well? Absolutely. Um, such an honor to be uh, in this conversation with you both. My name is Star Wallen. I'm a 2002 Coke scholar from Mississippi. Uh, grew up in, in Hattiesburg uh, and now live in Washington, D.C. I, um, I came to education, I guess it, it, was, it was the family business, you could say. Definitely um, uh, generation generational commitment um, to the field and the stuff of dinner time conversation. Um, but I started my career in a more traditional management consulting environment, um, but quickly found my way back, uh, back to that, that center of gravity um, uh, and went into the classroom in DC public schools, uh, got my real education um, uh, in, in that experience and have had the good fortune of combining those two worlds, consulting and education, as the founder of Bell Creek Consulting, which is uh, a scrappy a scrappy group of folks that believe uh, in um, in really high quality um, support for mission driven organizations, uh, particularly those in the education to employment space. Uh, and so, um, as you said, Brandon, this has been an unprecedented time of, of challenges and opportunities for those organizations. And we've, we've had the great honor of walking alongside some really visionary teams as they navigate those challenges. My fun fact, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bridge the, the, the Brandon Pega um, theme and say, um, we do 
dance parties with our kids um, <laughs> when no one's looking, uh, uh, particularly set to 90s music uh, because uh, we're playing the long game that if we get them to request that music now when they uh, host parties or find a significant other in the future, they'll maybe play some songs that we can dance to then as well. So. Sorry, I'm uh, encouraged by your strategy because my son just won't let me turn off Encanto right now. So uh -huh. we've, been trying to, <laughs> we've been trying to bring some other music into the fold, but we are like one note, one lane the last few weeks. <laughs> At least it's a great soundtrack. <laughs> very true, very true. So I wanna move us into some questions and I think to start us off, you know, we've talked about at the top, right? There is complex, there's complexity that uh, is existing within our systems and there's opportunity. Let's start with some of those complexities. Like what do you think are the greatest challenges that we are facing right now in education? And Pega, will you start us off? Yeah, um, I there's so many, but I would say one that really highlights for me that it, that keeps me up at night is our teacher and leader retention. Um, you started us off, Brandon, with I mean, it is the great resignation in a lot of sectors, um, and I would say it's something that in the education sector we were struggling with even before the pandemic um, quite a bit, and then the pandemic really like exacerbated it a bit or a lot. Um, and so I, I think that that's our biggest challenge because I think any sector gets better as people stay and get better at their craft. And so I often think about all the different inputs that are going in that are causing teachers and leaders to resign from the burnout factor to scope of work to the just the overall demands and maybe not feeling seen and heard as, as part of the like larger um, ecosystem of work. What about you, Star? What's on your mind as, as some of the, or one of the greatest challenges that we're facing right now? I definitely would, would, would plus one, Pega, your, your emphasis on uh, the, the core engine of education, which are the, the amazing people that show up every day um, to, to meet our kids and each other um, in, in a learning space productively. Uh, I think that that pressure is true from you know, bus driver shortages uh, to the classroom, to uh, principalships, and, and certainly even at the district uh, level and, and boards, I would say, right? There's just kind of a general um, exhaustion uh, that I think is having to be addressed pretty aggressively. I also think the, the pandemic uh, laid bare a lot of the structural challenges that were already present uh, across the country in education. Um, and uh, one that comes to my mind is, is enrollment trends, right? I think mm -hmm. a lot of districts have had to grapple with what happened in COVID when families made different decisions and continue to now exercise that choice and their voice in their decision-making. But really the idea that, that families are able to vote with their feet and to scrutinize their decisions has always been present. Um, and you combine that with truly the lowest birth rates we've seen as a nation. And I think there is this wave of uh, structural challenges that, that districts and schools will have to grapple with as they need to show up better um, and more agilely, um, often in, in more constrained resource environments. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's, that will add a, add a layer of challenge that many of our um, uh, teams have, have not totally grappled with um, successfully yet. 
I'm on the school board here in Boston, and it is a very real issue that we're experiencing, thinking about it, the enrollment trends that are historical, like we've been watching cities experience decline before the pandemic, but um, things feel different right now. And Pega, to your point too, like the, the, the work that we need to do to keep teachers, to retain them, to retain our best talent as well in leadership positions, um, it's, it's bigger than a now problem, but it feels really different um, because also the options are different. You know, I, we, I recently read a statistic, there's two jobs for every one person looking. And so there's just different opportunity right now. And folks have to be seen and heard and valued and taken care of in order to stay. Um, and we have, we have to do better. I keep thinking about uh, the sort of complex mental health challenges that we're experiencing right now. We saw the Surgeon General report at the end of last year. There's a 50% increase in adolescent girls year over year uh, experiencing suicidal ideation and being hospitalized for that. And so, you know, we have a challenge, we had a challenge before the pandemic as a country in honest, hard and supportive conversations around mental health needs. Um, the needs are now deeper and bigger and more complex um, given the, the collective trauma we've experienced, but also individualized trauma as a result of the pandemic. And I'm watching it show up on the ground. I know leaders across the country are also seeing it. Um, and we need to accelerate supports in a very different way. That's within schools and then all of the safety nets outside of schools that allow folks to access. And you talk to any therapist uh, across the country right now and they are sharing that they have wait lists and it is hard to get an appointment. And this is a really stretched time for a system that experienced uh, incredible underinvestment. Um, mm. And so I'm hopeful, but I know it's a complexity that, and a challenge that we're gonna have to really address and tackle head on. I wanna hear from you guys as well. Where do you see the biggest opportunity, right? So like there, there were successes in the pandemic that will allow us to do better by kids and families. And so I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm wondering what's keeping you hopeful as well. What about, wanna start us off, Star? Yeah, I, I feel like what I've observed working with teens across the country is those that have pre-pandemic already embraced uh, kind of a, a yes and um, philosophy um, or a you know build a bigger table, not a higher wall um, approach are able to turn that into a, a way of handling the challenges that are unprecedented uh, in, in magnitude that they're, they're addressing right now. I mean, I think the collective trauma point you just made, Brandon, is is an excellent example of that. In some ways, that makes for people who are less able to give and receive and, and kind of bring people into a healing tent. And in other ways, it means that folks for which trauma felt more distant now can tap into an empathy and an experience and a personal um a personalization of that, that, that I think can create really um, in, important connections. Um, and so I think uh, what I uh, am seeing that I think is, is so exciting is that um, with the structural challenge, with the, the very personal challenge challenges um, at all altitudes, when, when people put on the hat of what's possible um, and how that can be turned into 
um, something better and kind of a, a leap forward as, a, as opposed to a fallback, um, it can be really transformational. Um, so yes, enrollment is declining. Uh, and yes, that might mean that, um, that the footprint that districts are operating um, doesn't make sense as it, as it used to be. But what comes next is not all about um, uh, about the downsides of that. It can be about truly reimagining the way we show up for kids um, and come together as adults um, to support each other as well. Hey, where, where's your head at on this question? Um, I'm totally going to build off of stars. Um, so uh, I think about it like a micro level and then a macro level. And so we've what make, keeps me really help, hopeful in these trying times is on the micro level, what we deeply believe around like strengths-based coaching. And so Star, what you said really resonates is like meeting people where they're at, asking them, you know, like honestly starting with a celebration, but then giving them time to really unpack the challenges that they're going through. Like they, 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 we, we say a lot of state of being is like imbuing you with your own intelligence. I mean, just having that space to really process that. And so I think even in the challenges, the opportunity of feeling like, there are things I can do, even on a small level, individual level, or like at school, whatever their position is, um, classroom to school to district, um, I think is, is just an opportunity I think we could really scale and do a lot with. Um, and then on the macro level, um, Brandon, as you were speaking, it really helped, actually had me reconnect back to 2014 when we were launching the school that I was founding, um, it Kip Connect. It, was a perp- it's, it is a purpose-built community. And so that was actually a very compelling why to have me uh, found in the neighborhood I grew up in was it is the school, but we also have a YMCA that's going to be, you know, an anchor in the community around different um, supports. There's going to be um, a health organization in our nurse's office. It's not just the nursing for the students, right? So just in purpose-built community has a few of these different sites across the, the, the nation and different schools. And so really not feeling like as educators, we have to be the end-all be-all, but there's other really strong, amazing, smart people in different organizations that we can partner with to provide the well-rounded social, emotional learning, whatever, you know, all the things that our, our families and our students need and um, deserve. Um, and so that just got me thinking back, Brandon, as you were speaking to like the opportunities of like, what are these different partnerships that can exist um, so that we don't feel like we have to carry everything um, on our shoulders. I'm loving this conversation and there's so much sort of connective tissue between all three of us. I'm thinking like where I think about opportunity is I'm thinking about this like incredible investment that we have from the feds, from states, really thinking differently about resourcing schools. And, you know, I have all the fears of like, can we spend it smart and well? <laughs> and at the same time, to your point, Pega, I think there, what we will see a lot of um, is this evidence-based work around community schools, knowing that we need wraparound services now more than ever, knowing that parts of the nonprofit sector have experienced decline in, in their sort of give and their get. And there's this opportunity for contracted services from, from cities and districts and schools to be able to provide those supports in a really localized way through a school. And I'm encouraged by that possibility that we'll see much more community and, and sort of like community hubs coming out uh, on the other side, particularly given that we can finally invest in that type of strategy. Um, fingers crossed, right? And, you know, us and a lot of folks out there doing the hard work, I think are going to help us realize some really good things. I want to shift gears for a second. And I'm curious from your end and from your own work, 
like what's an innovation, an idea, a movement, a method, a, a sort of thing that you're watching right now that's getting you excited. You can either be watching it or doing it, right? But like you're, that you're sort of seeing take shape that's like keeping you excited, keeping you hopeful and you wanna make sure people know about. There's lots of fertile ground here to pick from. Um, and it's thanks to, to, to folks like Pega and Brandon you know, that are showing up every day and doing the work um, that, that there are so many great examples. Uh, I think the one that is exciting to see more folks really pick up and scrutinize and adopt uh, as part of the, the core DNA of their district philosophy is this idea that, uh, that school doesn't have to equal lockstep progression, uh, the equal number of hours in the same seat for every kid every day. Um, and, and Brandon, you started talking about the neurodivergent students that you serve. I think it's not a new concept, right? That we all show up in different ways, that we all are smart in different ways. But having an interruption in what was the status quo of school has, I think, asked uh, even the most traditional um, kind of dedicated thinkers to, to think differently about what it means to meet students where they are, when they show up, how they show up, um, and embrace all the, all the good uh, and all the potential that, that that means for each individual. So I think this idea of, I and mean, there's lots of buzzwords around it, of competency-based education and the like, and I, it's less about the buzz and it's more about, no, really, really, right? We have authentic apprenticeships that are, um, that are, allowing teachers to get the time to, to recharge during the week, sending students into authentic learning through work experiences, producing uh, outcomes for our communities that really matter um, because students are actually serving the community through that work. Um, and that's not just a, a buzzy thing anymore. It's actually hitting, I think, a lot of places. And I think that's true at the adult education level too. I don't know, Peg, if you've, if you've seen that and how you all are thinking about adjusting for principal and teacher retention as well, but our, 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 the people, the talent in education are as diverse as our students. And I think we have yet to apply that um, to them as well. I'm super happy to build off of the star. Yes. Like all of that resonates. Um, I would say I'll start with like right before the pandemic, you know, we, we were dabbling into like redesign curriculum, things like that. And then I think the pandemic, honestly, it halted that innovation because mm -hmm. we were just so reactive. Um, but then kind of now, hopefully on the other side of like at least the height of the pandemic to really see like, why isn't this or why can't it truly change the way we approach from, to your point, Star, like the timing, like what are summers, right? What, like, um, the, 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 like there's very antiquated practices and philosophies we still do that um, don't meet the needs of our learners and not the, for the times of today um, uh, to actually like what could it look like to take actually more frequent breaks um, but then you can actually do something a little bit more around so people feel truly rested and recharged in a different way. And I think the thing I'd like really to underscore as, as, as I was resonating with everything you said, Star, is that it's that risk-taking culture that I feel is, is a great uh, aspect to keep our teachers and leaders. Like, um, here's the sandbox. Here's the, like a little messiness of it. But we know that your heart is pure, that you want kids to learn. You want to learn yourself as a professional. You want to grow. And that, that to me is that risk-taking culture in itself is innovation. Um, cause on the flip side with 
And even in academic recovery and learning loss, like so much like the constant focus of test scores um, and as the measure, um, it is a measure. Accountability is important. And there are other ways to measure both student and adult learning and um, growth. Um, and to your point, Star, yes, we have seen that. At, like, we do a principal and residency program and 70% of the learning is what we call on the ground learning. It's not about your formal development. It's not about necessarily coaching. I'm a huge coaching fan, but that's only the 20% and the 10% and 70% is the on the ground. Um, let's, what just happened? Let's debrief that. Let's do some reflection part, and which is the same thing we can see in capstone projects with students, right? Um, and so that just really resonates. And I do, I just want to like lift up this risk-taking and like trusting culture that I do think could help our like teacher retention issues. Brandon, I'm, love to hear. No, I, I love this conversation. My head for some reason, and maybe it's because it's, it's getting close, right? As I keep thinking about all of the ways we've sort of reimagined summer across this country. And I think mm-hmm. it will be one of the wins through the pandemic is that everyone started to look at summer opportunities differently. Listen, families who are well-resourced have always had a really tight and really meaningful summer plan, whether that's a summer camp or traveling around different places or visiting different parts of America. Like there's always been something rich happening for folks with economic mobility during the summer. And that has not always been true for working class folks and folks who are at the poverty line. And I think we've seen something really innovative happening across particularly in cities across the country, New York City launching Summer Rising. It's the largest summer programming that's not like punitive summer school. Uh, We're seeing it here in Boston with a goal of like every kid having a one-to-one summer plan. I think like a way of thinking about learning not through remediation, but through opportunity and with a really important eye, if we're gonna address the opportunity gap, that like the gap exists outside of COVID, it existed before COVID and exists now. And so like the work has to be there sort of regardless of the pandemic. And I think people are finally starting to to accelerate there in a different way. Um, And that makes me excited. And I think, I hope that that is a thing that really sort of sticks around for all of us. I'm going to keep going because we could like talk about a hundred things today. I'm curious from your end, you know, this is me as a guy who is deeply committed to special education and cultivating opportunity for kids with disabilities, but really through like a justice lens, asset-based, not through a deficit model. But there's a million ways that we are thinking about inclusive education. And like this moment has shifted uh, across education systems, the way we're thinking about diversity and equity and inclusion and belonging for kids who have been minoritized. I'm curious what's on your mind as we talk about inclusive education. What does it mean to you and what are you doing or seeing that you want to make sure people take note of? Uh, Pega, will you start us off? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it's become the focus more than ever. And so I think my headline that I would start with is that who are at the margins, because that is actually different depending on so many factors, but whoever's at the margins as we teach to that, or as we develop to that, depending on what age they are, um, which actually should be the same, right? Growth and development for either five-year-olds or 50-year-olds, then everything gets better. And so I'll actually start on the adult end and then trickle it down to the student end for us. So like when I think of inclusivity on the leadership pipeline level, we are constantly looking in the mirror around 
our demographics of folks getting into our programming, how they're progressing through our, our like our readiness model, um, and where are the deficits. So we, for example, um, had a goal around, you know, BIPOC uh, identifying individuals being in our programming. We surpassed that by over 90%. Awesome. And in that over 90% of BIPOC identifying leaders, we realized there's still a gap in males and Latinx leaders in our, in our system, right? So even though, um, you know, so we're constantly saying who's actually at the margins and how do we get the most representative um, of our communities and of our students? And that absolutely trickles to, to, to the student level. And so depending on our schools, there's different demographics, there's different needs. It's like, who is the outermost when we teach to that or when we plan, that's the better word, when we plan for that, everything gets better. So that's the like headline that I always walk away with inclusivity is like really always scrutinizing because you can always find someone a little bit more at the margins and not just say that the textbook definition of like what a minority is, what's the minority or the marginalized in your specific setting and context. I love that, Pega. Star, what's, what are you thinking about? Well, I, I, I love, my, my mind immediately went to um, how many I, I would I would throw out a challenge to find a district in the country right now that doesn't have something on our website related to the word equity. Um, and I think so I think this point about it is in the water um, is true, but what it actually means in practice, I think is a really important question to lift lift up. and and Pega, you're you're kind of starting first with uh, a, a real hard look at, the data and what the facts of the situation are, not at a surface level, but at a true nuanced, let's use this as a flashlight to examine our practices to really uncover where we've had inequitable access to our most high demand schools as a district or where we are systematically kind of um, uh, deprioritizing the needs of certain groups of students or or un, un, under delivering on the engagement of a set of families, whatever their um, their kind of starting point may be, I think is always where I find the most fruitful conversation because without that data based grounding, it's it it quickly becomes emotional and it is a it is a challenge. You know, talk about the the risk trust um, dynamic you were you were raising earlier, Pega. To me, this is ground zero of the need of cr cultivating a really important trust-based uh, assuming positive intent, but also holding each other accountable to, to, to the hard conversations space um, that's happening. Um, but I, I think, I think uh, you know, applying that lens across the board um, uh, to families, to students, to staff, um, and, and being systematic about it um, is is a practice that I um, I'm biased towards uh, from my background and my training and the work that I do, but I think it's also we have to apply the same amount of rigor we apply to uh, every other uh, question to to this one. I think if we're going to to make the progress that's necessary. Man, I keep you're speaking my language. I'm thinking so much about to your point. Like everyone's using the word equity everyone's saying equity. And I often, I think, which is true in so many other parts of education as well. Like the thing that, um, that we are talking about becomes jargon. And so it just sort of loses meaning. And that's my fear right now. And I'm watching it in real time. I'm sure all of us are in different ways. Like folks say the, the word equity and we're not sure if we're normed on what that means or what it looks like, or 
not sure if that person as an individual has sort of like done the real work of knowing themselves in order to understand their practice and know other people. Um, so I think there's opportunity, particularly for the district who are thinking about equity as um, through a systems level lens, but also as the individuals doing, like through the individuals doing the work. Um, I think that keeps me incredibly hopeful. I get nervous for the folks who take on equity challenges just at that systems level lens, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're just gonna talk about it up here and we're never gonna talk about it sort of from the folks who are, who are in front of kids and leading kids every day or who are driving leadership development from a central level or a systems level. Um, so it's like in the water, it's everywhere. And at the same time, like what does high quality equity work look like? What does it actually mean to be committed to belonging? And, and how do we know ourselves and the work in order to do it well? And that'll be the real way that we like move through justice frameworks and, and drive opportunity for kids. I'm gonna move us into one of our last questions. Um, I'm curious from, from your end, like, what do you think is a challenge right now that we're not talking about? Like, we know the headlines, we're reading the things that, that folks are telling us we need to be focused on. We're watching our own systems or school districts make investments in, in, in programmatic elements or, or particular pieces of a puzzle that had been unfilled before. Uh, but I'm curious, what are we not talking about? And Pega, do you wanna start us off? It could be a couple ways I'll go, but I'm actually going to build off of what you just left us off with, Brandon, around um, when equity can be everywhere, the threat is it can be also nowhere, right? And so we're talking about it, so it's not really answering your question, but the parts I guess maybe we're not talking about um, or that we need to talk more about is what do we actually need to look in the mirror about to truly dismantle, and it's really uncomfortable, Um in order to make the progress where we need to. And so when you were speaking and I try to just mesh it with the question, because <laughs> I think it's really felt like we had to take a really hard look at some of our codified systems that were truly limiting people to access leadership roles. Right. And they're not bad systems. They just weren't inclusive systems. Right. And so that's a hard part. Cause like we could look at it and say, yeah, we have to, but all the politics involved in that, all the different people that had stake in that. And truly it's, it's, and it's still rooted in a lot of dominant culture practices, right? And so we have to constantly be looking at that. And that to me is the hardest conversation because it is change. It to your point, Star, the emotional part comes up because we don't, it's hard to have to admit like we were doing wrong by people. Um, and, um, and so the, the connection I'm also going to make is just around, I'm, I live in Texas and, um, you know, we, we believe at KIPP around culturally responsive teaching. And we also live in a state that doesn't in terms of the like laws. And so I think to, again, back to Brandon, like the, what are, what is the biggest challenge? What are we not talking about? It's all the other overlapping systems that we have to truly navigate to get to where we want to. And knowing that it's, it's incredibly complex um, and how do we talk about that? Because I can say from a, from a charter network, we are also at risk of losing our charter, depending on how we, you know, navigate some of these really, um, complex situations. Um, so that I'll stop there in terms of like the balance of like the ideal state, but then also the current state that we have to navigate through. And how are we actually talking about the true current state? I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Star, what, what are we not talking about? You know, Pega, you, you had said earlier that some of the innovation wheels kind of 
came to a halt as as so many folks were forced to be reactive and kind of in this defensive crouch of like, how are we going to survive this moment? And I think we are at the peak of the wave of people feeling like there is this combination of uh, pressure to do things differently, resources to do them differently, enough folks who haven't burned out yet that are still in the game to do it differently, uh, enough folks that are being being kind of drawn into the tent and want to participate to create that that new world. Um, I worry that that as the wave uh, comes down, whether it's you know the ESSER federal relief dollars kind of fading, whether it's people just um, feeling like, oh, maybe maybe how things were weren't as bad as we thought. Let's kind of revert to the revert to the mean. Um, I think there's a a risk that we um, that this comes comes in with a bang and goes out with a whimper uh, in a way that would be a real uh, a real missed opportunity for our generation. I think um, so. That that's that's a big bigger more macro um, worry that I think the the sustainability and acceleration of the dynamic of this moment um, is I think something we should be we should be trying to bottle up and and reserve for later. And like marry that with our current staffing crisis and attrition problem, like all of it, I'm with you. The thing that's on my mind is as we're seeing increases in young folks who are being identified as having special needs and we're watching the mental health crisis. Um, I think like no one's talking about how broken the system has already been, right? Like we operate uh, services for kids with disabilities really in a binary, like you either are general ed or you are special ed. And so we've created a world where there's just like two types of people and there is a greater complexity in how disability shows up in our lives and the differences between disabilities. And so like the idea of special education obviously is just like completely rooted through a dominant lens of like of typ- through typical people. And there's such diversity in the needs of folks with disabilities, whether those are cognitive or behavioral health challenges or, or physical disabilities. And we just like lump it all together. And I think we will have, uh, continue to have missed opportunities in research, missed opportunities in service delivery, and then missed opportunities in students seeing themselves and and experiencing pride in who they are when we don't differentiate identity uh, in a way that allows kids to feel seen and heard and valued and individualized in many ways as well. All right. We could keep going, but I'm gonna bring us into a fun part of our conversation today. And it's the fast five. So I'm gonna ask you five questions. Peg, I'm gonna start with you, so get ready. And it's just like rapid fire. You just have to go really fast. Are you ready? All right, question number one. What are two apps or websites you can't live without? Um, H-E-B curbside, that's a grocery store. Um, I believe in everything curbside. Um, And another (laughs) app, Facebook. Oh, great. If I looked at your music on your iPhone or iPod right now, who has iPods, but iPhone, what would most surprise me? This is still me, right? Uh, I don't think it would, I hope it wouldn't surprise you. Huge fan of JLo and Beyonce. Oh, I see you. (laughs) What's your favorite book or, or piece of music or art that has like inspired you in your life? 
Oh, in my life. Um, I'll actually go with a book from middle school, like when I was in middle school, uh, The Outsiders. Uh, just everything about just people. I'm just gonna, just I people love it. Dynamics. A quote or a motto that you live by. Leadership is defined by what you bring that is different to the table. I love that. What makes the Koch Scholars program or network unique? The rich alumni um, investment and base. Oh, so true. All right, Star, you're up next. Are you ready? Oh, I feel like uh, the pressure is high because I had the think time and now I'm like too many ideas and <laughs> I know sometimes you, like, you so think elegantly you think it's a benefit to go second but you know <laughs> sometimes we'll stall I have a feeling you're going to be great so what are two apps or websites you can't live without well <laughs> I, I'm also going to go uh Instacart like I haven't been to a grocery store now in a really long time uh with kids um that is um a total game changer um uh and uh i'm gonna say uh ways because i am um navigationally challenged i appreciate that and same i still have to like put it in to get home if i looked at the music on your iphone what would most surprise me uh this is less about the what and the how it is how frequently I listen to the same thing. <laughs> uh, also, I think I'm one of only three people in the world that still has Pandora. Um, but I'm, I'm all about, oh, good, I'm in good company. Um, uh, I'm all about like, this is generally what I like. Now take, take the thinking away so that I can just enjoy. Um, I love it. Favorite book, piece of music, art that's inspired you today? One of my favorites, I would say, um, is a combination of, of uh, book and art. Uh, I think Brandy Carlisle's um, uh, like autobiography, where it's a, this beautiful tapestry of her music and the meaning behind her songs, and also her story of discovery of herself and kind of um, all that she represents in terms of um, that commitment to belonging, no matter no matter how you show up and who you are. Um, uh, I thought was a, a really fantastic piece of art and something that you'll you'll see is on repeat on my phone when you when you scrutinize it. <laughs> what quote or motto do you live by? I'm only one, but I am one. Can't do everything, but still can do something uh, because I cannot do the everything that will not keep me from doing the something that I can do. Um, a little bit of a serenity prayer um, for these trying and also um, incredibly optimism generating times. Love it. All right, last one. What makes the Coke Scholars Program or network unique? I think, I mean, this conversation is a great example of that. Just the uh, the the caliber of of the work that you all are doing in the world, and and all of our kind of um, co like colleagues and and folks that have were. were identified um, by the, the Koch Scholars Program all those many years ago, but with that wind at our back, I think um, uh, can step into what's possible um, and use our voice for good. I think um, a, a nod to how important it is to, um, to honor the power of, of young voices because they become the, the voices that really um, echo throughout the world later on. Love it. All right, I'm going to do myself really fast. I think I get the best benefit because I've read them, I've watched you, 
and I've been thinking. So two apps or websites <laughs> I can't live without. Um, Instagram and Edutopia. If I looked at the music on my phone, what would surprise me? Um, I'm not sure if anyone would be surprised, but also JLo. Like, I think I'm like top 3% of listeners that might during my Spotify wrapped. <laughs> Favorite book or piece of music? Uh, the Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison. I read it every year. It has changed my life. Um, I could talk about it forever. It's the best. What quote or motto do you live by? Uh, I should have thought about this. Um, don't accept a no from someone not in power to give you a yes. And changed my life in many ways as well. I'm like gay, Latino, first gen, like the, this space, this one and the ones that we work in like was not designed for me, but you keep pushing through and you recognize that like, sometimes you have to go above the person who said no to you. And what makes the Koch Scholars Programmer Network unique? Um, it's like social capital. And there's a lot, it's an incredibly diverse group of folks with different experiences and different histories. I will say for myself, like I'm the first in my family to go to college, like that entire world was completely foreign to me. And I felt really lucky that I got to go into that with, with a network um, that I knew long-term was going to offer incredible opportunity. And I want that for every kid, every day, everywhere to, to have that and to, to be able to build those connections. Um, it makes all the difference. That's our time. And this was fun. Thank you guys. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode between Brandon Carde Hernandez, Pega Taylor, and Star Wallen. For their full bios and links to the resources that they discussed, check out our show notes or visit coca-colascholarsfoundation.org. And if you have a minute, we would love for you to rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe so you'll be the first to receive new episodes. Join us in a couple of weeks for episode six when scholars Sophia Jihan Miller, Tiffany Kassab Williams, Katie Yu, and Ben Kaplan will discuss building a personal brand and creating digital content. See you next time on The Sip. Bye.